Beloved, let's hear our God call us to worship this morning. These are snippets from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Beloved, Christ did die for our sins, and he is risen from the dead. All of God's promises are absolutely sure in Jesus. And so we are free in Christ to come and to admit that we're sinners, and that we are needy, that we need Christ, we need his work, and recognize that God in his grace to us forgives us for our sins in Christ, and he promises us resurrection life. So let's confess together our sin, and let's be a people of resurrection as we proclaim what Christ has done for us. I'm going to read this confession out loud, and I would ask that you read it uh, along with me, and then we will spend a few moments silently, uh, more particularly and specifically, confessing to our God. But let's read this together, beloved. Merciful Father, we all sin and stray from your ways like self-centered children. Our hearts are self-obsessed. Our thoughts are impure. Our words wound rather than bless. Our actions are rebellious. Forgive us. Your scandalous mercy to sinners is truly shown on the cross. Christ became our sin and took the penalty we deserve. Heavenly Father, your glorious grace is victoriously displayed through the resurrection. We are immeasurably blessed. Through Jesus, we are the people of God. We are forgiven. We are righteous. We are your children. There is peace with you. Triune God, make us seek your kingdom. May we live for your glory. Amen. Now let's take a few moments to quietly go before your God, confess your sin, and see his grace to you in Jesus. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we confess all of these things in the hope of your mercy, which you have given us fully and finally in your one and only Son, Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Beloved, our God is gracious and he wants us to hear the assurance of his grace to us in the blood of his one and only son, our Savior, 
Jesus. And he wants us to hear the promise of resurrection life in Christ. Because it is true that we were dead in our sins and our trespasses. But God has made us alive in Christ in his finished work on the cross. And beloved, it is by grace that we have been saved so that we would know the immeasurable riches of our God's grace toward us in Jesus. And so now let's declare our faith together. Declare what it is that we believe about what Christ has done, what God has done for us in Jesus and through the work of the Spirit. And we're going to do that this morning using the Apostles' Creed. So I will ask you what you believe and then let's say the Apostles' Creed together. Beloved of Christ, those who have been bought by the blood of the Lamb, what is it that you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Beloved, our Christ has indeed risen from the dead. Good morning. It's good to be with you again. I tell you, as these weeks go on, I feel more and more like I miss wanting to be with you. And so I hope that we can do, uh, we can worship again together in the same place sooner rather than later. But I am glad that we can still look together at God's Word. So let's do that as we look at Ezra 1 this morning. I'm going to read the first five verses to you, but your weekly church-wide email bulletin format has the whole chapter. Uh, So I am going to talk about the whole chapter, but I'm just going to read the first five verses. And before I do that, I want to remind you of our framework. So as we look through the Bible together this year, we're thinking about the numbers three, four, and five. And if you understand these three numbers, then you will understand and hopefully fill in more and more of the framework as we go through the scriptures together. So three loves. Love God, love people, love the place where he's put us. We see that in Genesis 1 and 2. This is how we were designed. This is what we were made for, to glorify and enjoy God as we love him, love people, and love others. Four-part story, creation, rebellion, redemption, and restoration. Five stands for five threads. Thread number one, God has always had a people. He's always been building his church. Thread two, evil is real, but it never gets the last word. Three, the third thread, God is gracious, grace. God pursues, initiates, and saves. Thread four, he has done it. Jesus has accomplished redemption. And five, the fifth thread, everything is moving toward Jesus. As we go through the Bible together in our lives, time itself, everything is moving toward Jesus. So with that little reminder, let's look together at God's word for us today. The first five verses of Ezra chapter one. Listen to this. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, 
the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred up, to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for raising your son. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have defeated and conquered death and sin and infused the world with resurrection power. We thank you that you defeated the greatest enemy by crushing his head through your resurrection. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you have come to bear witness to the power and the reality of the work of Jesus. Would you do that even now as we look at Ezra 1? Connect our lives to this story and impress upon us that there is good news, that Christ is alive. We pray in his name. Amen. As we look at Ezra this morning, I want us to first of all get our bearings. Let's make sure we're all on the same page as we look at these books that perhaps we haven't read very recently or perhaps we're not very familiar with them at all. So let's get our bearings. Let's remember that the Bible is not basic instructions before leaving earth. The Bible is not an instruction manual. The Bible is a story. It is the story, the story of all of reality. That means that when you dive into that story, this is where we've been so far. We looked at creation. We looked at rebellion. We looked at the reality that God promised a family, a people, a nation. We looked at how that nation ended up in Egypt and how God, by his gracious plan, brought his people out of Egypt then we look together at his people entering into the land of promise, the land that God had promised them. And then living in that land, John Paul mentioned to us last week when we talked about and summarized the kings, the people of God living in the land had one of the highest points in their entire history through King David, what John Paul talked about last week. That with David, it's not so much that David was a great person, he struggled with arrogance, he thought he could bring a lot to the table. Maybe you remember some of this. But what God did with David was help us understand more of God's plan for the entire world in the coming of Christ. Meaning that we got to understand more and more that the covenant is the language of the four-part story. Then, after David's rule, let me tell you, everything just went downhill. Uh, the kingdom ended up dividing uh, the, both divisions of the kingdom ended up exiled in a foreign land. And what we're looking at in Ezra and Nehemiah in this morning's sermon from Ezra 1 is that 
This is when God's people returned to the land from exile. They came out of exile and returned to the promised land. This is why, if you look back at Ezra chapter 1, the last verse of this first chapter, it says that God's people returned from Babylonia to Jerusalem. That's a summary of everything that goes on in Ezra and Nehemiah. God's people return to their home in Jerusalem. All right, so that's our bearings. Now we're going to look at the text and look at two questions together. Question number one, what happened? Question number two, what is happening? So let's look at this first question together and answer it as we look at the text. What happened? Well, when you look at the first verse and the first few phrases, what you find out is Cyrus became the ruler over the Babylonian Empire. Cyrus overthrew who was before him, and he established his reign. Now, the Babylonian Empire is basically in our day and age, if you think about the region of Iraq, the northern Iraq region, that's what it's talking about. Cyrus became ruler over the Babylonian Empire, and he even extended his rule such that at its height, uh, he was in charge over the territory from the Aegean Sea all the way to India, a massive territory that he was in charge of. So Cyrus was king. That's what happened. The second thing that happened is that he made this decree. And this first phrase of this first verse tells us that we can even date this decree. He made the cre decree in the first year of his reign, which we know was 538. That was the year that Cyrus made this decree, and this was the content of his decree. He said, if you look at verses 2 and 3, that God's people could return to their homeland, they could rebuild the temple in their lives, and that they actually could worship the God that they loved. And he also added this. Not only that they could return and rebuild and worship, but if you look at verses 4 and 6, he also promised them resources. He said that his people and his kingdom should provide gold and silver, even animals and other resources that would be needed, supplies that would be needed in order to rebuild the temple. So God's people were able to return to Jerusalem. Can you imagine what this must have looked like? And if you read in chapter 2 of Ezra, you'll find that 50,000 people left this part of the world and returned to Jerusalem, about 900 miles. Now, when you think about this, remember that when God's people left Egypt and ultimately entered into the land of promise, that they were more than a million people, maybe even more than two million people. And now, this first wave back to Jerusalem, they were about 50,000 people and all that they carried with them was what they had been given. So people had given them supplies and they were carrying it all the way back to Jerusalem. And they were going to return to a place that had been decimated. It probably looked pretty post-apocalyptic. I mean, everything was burned to the ground in Jerusalem before their exile. They were returning to gigantic ash heaps everywhere. And here they were, going to have to rebuild everything and dependent on resources of others. Well, Cyrus also added this. If you look at verse 7 and following, Cyrus said that there were things that were stolen from God's people, that were stolen from you and me by Nebuchadnezzar. 
And Cyrus determined to return all of those things to God's people. They were special things that belonged in God's house. So God's people could take them and put them back in their rightful place. Now what's fascinating about this is that this decree that Cyrus made, well, you can actually find, about, find out more details about this. Uh, if you were to go to the British Museum, you would find the Cyrus Cylinder in that museum. And if you were able to read that, what you would find is that everything that is said in Ezra 1 is right there on the cylinder, plus a couple more details. Now, it's not a huge piece that you can look at online. It's basically like 9 or 10 inches by 4 inches. But what you can find if you read further on that little cylinder, that little piece, is this. That Cyrus said, you can worship whoever you want to worship. I just want you to ask your God to give me a long life. And oh, by the way, I want, I want y'all to know that I, Cyrus, worship the sun God. So, with that said, what we learn about this decree and what we learn about what Cyrus was doing is that Cyrus was committed to pluralism. Now, very simply, perhaps even overly simplistic, pluralism just simply means that there are, it's allowed to have multiple belief systems in a certain empire. So, this is a lot like our day. We live in a culture and a time and place in which there are all kinds of ideas and all kinds of beliefs out there. We engage with people all the time that don't think like we do, and that probably won't change in the near future. So we live in a pluralistic society as well. So there's a parallel there for us to really think about. And yes, there are negative things about living in a pluralistic society. That's true. You've probably heard all kinds of them. Uh, and, and besides that, it, we, there will always be opposition to Christianity. There will always be opposition to the Lord Jesus and who he is and to his church. There will always be that. We should expect that. We should not be surprised when there's opposition to Christ. But let's think for a minute about some of the positive things of living in a pluralistic place. Let's think about all the, op let's think about at least about some of the opportunities that we have living in a pluralistic culture. Uh, one of them is this, that there is space and for, for different views, that there's even an expectation that different people have different views. That's important. It's also important that we recognize that in our day and age, we are not facing predominantly violent opposition to what it is we believe. The day in which we live, people aren't so much violently against what we believe in Christianity they're just completely indifferent. Like, they don't see any need for Christianity. They don't understand why the Christian faith and what Jesus has done matters at all. Friends, this is a great opportunity for us. It's a great opportunity for us to engage with those who are not of the same mindset. It's an opportunity for us to learn more about what others think. You see, we could talk a lot about methodology and we could teach a particular method about how to share your faith and perhaps that would be helpful. And if you want to learn more about that, you can contact me or John Paul or one of the elders and we can help. But what matters in living in a pluralistic society 
is oftentimes how we come across is equally important to the content of what we say. So when we engage those who don't believe in the same way as we do, it's so important that rather than having a a canned approach to talking to people, that we are able to listen, that we are able to ask questions, that we are able to be vulnerable about our own lives, it's very important that we get close enough to people over time so that we can tell them why Jesus means so much to us, why we need Christ, and how oftentimes what we found is that Christianity provides the best basis for understanding reality, purpose, meaning, hope, identity. And when we do that, we will be able to have real conversations over time talking to others about what we believe. Living in a pluralistic society has a tremendous, tremendous upside, something that we should think about all the time. Well, that's what happened. Cyrus, and he made his decree. Now let's think about what is happening. You realize Cyrus's decree is what happened, but there's a lot more that's going on that the text tells us. The text tells us that there are other things that are really that are happening, that are going on. So, let's think about those. What we see, first of all, what's really happening is this. God is faithful to his word. The first couple verses tell us that God had promised through Jeremiah and through Isaiah that Cyrus would make this decree so that God's people could return home. God had promised this through Jeremiah in chapter 25 of Jeremiah and 24 and Isaiah 44 and 45. God promised that his people would be able to return. Cyrus makes a decree, but what's really happening, God is being faithful to his word. Here's the second thing that's happening. God is stirring up the heart. God is stirring the heart of Cyrus, if you look at verse 1. And God is stirring the hearts of his people in verse 5. God is stirring the heart. Now it's easy for us to just think about what has happened and miss what's really happening. Let's think about exactly where we are and what's going on in our lives right now. Here's what's happened the coronavirus, and we have to figure out a new normal. That's what has happened. But do you know what's happening? God is doing something inside of us through the coronavirus and the new life that we have to figure out. God is doing something in us. So, We're put in situations in which perhaps we discover that we're far more anxious than we thought. We realize we're more nervous than we thought. We realize that we've made an awful lot of plans, not thinking about, well, if the Lord wills, maybe this will happen. You see, our lives are not just one big checklist and that we just go through that checklist each day to knock off those items. 
God is working through everything that we are experiencing. Everything. God is doing something in us. He's working. You see, when God stirs up the heart, he is really seeking us. He is really pursuing us. And he oftentimes does that in different ways. So at times, God's working in us and seeking us can be very dramatic. You know, the coming on of this virus was pretty dramatic. And all of a sudden was here and things had changed. Yes, there are many of you in the medical profession that saw that this was coming. But for most of us, it just happened. And then regulations and restrictions started to occur. They just happen. Sometimes it can be very dramatic that God does things in our lives. At other times, things can be very quiet and internal, as if God is constantly, patiently arguing with us. You know, the things that we go through, having to figure out life now, we hear those arguments that go on in our minds and in our hearts. God is seeking us. You see, when God is working in our lives and we begin to feel like we aren't enough, when we begin to realize that we aren't in control, when we begin to realize that we've been doing a lot of things in our lives on our own strength and we're learning that God is much bigger and more powerful and that his grace is far more sufficient than we could have imagined, What's actually happening is that we're learning to repent. We are learning to get out of ourselves and get into him and who he is and reliance on his power and not our own. You see, God stirring his people to return to the land. Remember, let's, let's think back through this again. Remember, Cyrus made this decree for God's people to return it's basically Cyrus was saying, if you follow the God of the scriptures, then you need to live by his promises. You need to go back and rebuild the place of worship so you can offer sacrifices. You need to go back to Jerusalem and, and rebuild your society. You need to gather again as God's people and you have the freedom to do that. And you have the resources that you need. What is actually happening in this passage is that God's people are being challenged to live by the gospel again. They can build their whole lives around who God is. They can center their entire existence on God. What's really happening is that God's people are being encouraged to live by the gospel again. And friends, I want to tell you that the easiest place for us to miss what happened and what is really happening, the easiest place to miss that or forget about it is Jesus. When you think back to what happened during the Holy Week when he was in Jerusalem and when he ended up being crucified, what happened is that it was physically horrific it was socially horrific. It was relationally very difficult. His closest friends ran away. It was unbelievably difficult. 
You even had one of the governing officials say that he found no fault with Jesus multiple times. What happened at Jesus' crucifixion was unbelievably horrific. Not even to mention how difficult it must have been for Jesus to be spiritually separated from God. To have his father turn his back on him. But my friends, what is actually happening through that work of Christ is redemption. Redemption, forgiveness, life with God. It was redemption. And the resurrection of Jesus, what many celebrate today, the resurrection of Jesus is the guarantee that redemption is true for you and for me. It's not that the cross was just this way that we're supposed to pattern our lives after Jesus and we just do good things like he did. No, Jesus was purchasing our redemption and the resurrection says what Jesus did is enough and it's true and it's real. And when you think about all of the content of Cyrus's declaration, that God's people would have the resources they need, they could go home, they could worship their God, they could rebuild society, they could live together with the protection that they needed and they had the freedom to go. All of those components have their fullest and deepest, most long-lasting effect in Jesus. It's in Jesus that we have protection. It's in Jesus that we find true freedom to be a human being that's limited it's in Jesus that we have all of the resources that we need to live in a very, very broken world, to live in very difficult times, to understand our joys. We have all the resources that we need. We have prayer. We have fellowship with his people. We understand God's word through Jesus. We have hope. We have all the resources we need. Everything that Cyrus decreed, we find its greatest and most deepest long-lasting effect in Christ. And friends, it's in Jesus that we're brought home. We're brought to God. And the resurrection, the resurrection tells us that the labor that we're doing now, as John Paul mentioned in the call to worship from 1 Corinthians 15, it's not in vain. But because of the resurrection, a better city is coming. A better time is coming. All the rebuilding that we will do, all the reconnecting that we will be able to do in the future weeks, Lord willing, all the things that will change, they're all moving us toward what is better and the best is yet to come. That's what the resurrection means for us. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you that your life is real, that you are alive today, that you are at the right hand of the Father praying for us, pleading your atoning blood for us. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that even though we are gathered together in different homes all over the place, that you are still acting on us and bringing us closer in our understanding and in our hearts to the Christ to the good news, to the gospel.
So we pray that you would take this good news and make us more alive to it, that we would live as a people that believe in resurrection, that we would live as a people who want to be more like Christ. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Remember our 5 o'clock live stream for some songs this afternoon. You can also listen to the playlist that we sent out this week if you're interested in listening to some music that talks about the resurrection of Christ and the significance of it. But as you continue to work out your week this week, again, don't panic. Live by God's word. Live by his blessing that has been bought by the blood of Christ and guaranteed by the empty tomb. So hear this. And try to live this week as if you actually believe it's true and encourage one another to do that as well. Now the God of peace that raised Jesus from the dead because of the blood of Christ, he, your father, is eternally bound to you. And through the blood of Christ, he is equipping you with every good thing you need to do his will. And it's even better. He's actually working in you what is pleasing in his sight so that one day all glory will go to our God, Father, Son, and Spirit, world without end. Amen. Go in peace.